is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Two more mass shootings rocking the country. Police say a man motivated by racial hatred and white supremacy opening fire inside a supermarket in a predominantly black neighborhood that, of course, was in Buffalo, killing 10 people. Replacement theory said to be a major factor in the shooting. We'll go in depth into what that is and how extremist groups are spreading this very insidious idea. Meantime, police say another man shot up a gathering at that church in Laguna Woods, killing one person and hurting five others. The motive there, they say, political tensions between China and Taiwan. We'll look into whether anything can and will be done to prevent further mass shootings. And Sweden says it is serious about wanting to join NATO. It's all because of Russia's war with Ukraine. Will Vladimir Putin's goal of stopping the spread of NATO, grow the military alliance even more? Summer travel season about to get started. Airlines dealing with a shortage of some important workers. The pilots, we'll talk about that. More people living in areas where there's high fire danger. We'll look into what's causing this. Uh, More homes built in the danger areas and or climate change. The White House has a plan to slow down inflation and the high cost of housing. Is that going to help us here in this state? And pizza companies having problems finding delivery drivers. Can they turn to those little robots that you see on the sidewalks wheeling past you? Yeah, they're kind of cute. I like how they have a little flag on the back. (laughs) <laughs> you know, here I am. <laughs> but here's the. But do you tip them? Well, or are they too slow to get my pizza to me while it's still hot? Ah, good question. We'll try to find out. We start though with uh, the mass shooting in Buffalo and radical white supremacy beliefs. With us is Peter Simi, sociology professor at Chapman University. He's an expert on extremist groups and co-authored the book manuscript American Swastika: Inside the White Power Movement's Hidden Spaces of Hate. Professor, thanks for being with us. So uh, in the Buffalo shooting, uh, what authorities are saying the uh, shooter was espousing was this whole notion of replacement theory. Can you briefly explain what exactly that is? Yeah, thank you. Uh, Replacement theory is basically uh, the idea of white genocide by by another name. It's It's an old set of ideas that have been circulating widely among white supremacists for quite some time. The idea that the white race is on the verge of extinction because of birth rates, because of mass immigration into what they would call traditional white homelands or white nations. Uh, it's actually an old set of ideas, though, that certainly you can go back to the, for instance, the 1915 film Birth of a Nation, which was viewed widely in the United States. And even President Woodrow Wilson at the time said it was like uh, writing history with a lightning rod. And that was an expression of, rep- of some version of replacement theory, which was basically as a celebration of the founding of the Ku Klux Klan during the Reconstruction era of Civil War after the Civil War. So. You know, the ideas have been around and circulating within, kind of deeply penetrating within U.S. society for quite some time. White supremacists in particular have certainly been pushing it, and now we're seeing it really seeping into the mainstream to a great extent. A recent poll by the University of Chicago finds that uh, one in three or one in seven um, uh, Americans uh, subscribe to some version or some tenets of, of replacement theory. So we're really seeing some startling kind of um, push of these ideas in terms of being accepted by a broader uh, set of the population beyond just, you know, a white supremacist extremist groups. And why do you think that is? Why has it spread like that? Well, we're seeing, for one, the promotion of the ideas uh, in some mainstream news outlets, in particular Fox News, 
Uh, Tucker Carlson has received a, a lot of attention for promoting some of the ideas related to replacement theory, but it's not just Carlson. It's a number of other hosts on Fox News. We see, you know, the whole problem of disinformation and misinformation because of digital technology. Uh, you see these ideas circulating widely uh, through various channels online. And then we had COVID come along, and we, it appears, based on the manifesto in, in the case of the, uh, the Buffalo attack, that that's when the uh, perpetrator was really kind of introduced to some of these ideas was uh, once kind of May of, of COVID, uh, when things really shut down, uh, that they were, you know, basically coming into contact with these ideas online. And so this this attack is even an example of how these the the replacement theory ideas really spread during the the, the shutdown during COVID. Is it just a a black white issue, or is it also uh, replacement theory applies to those who are non Christian? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a broad set. So they you know basically the idea is that white race is being replaced by anybody that they would call non-white, which is not just blacks. It's anyone that doesn't fit into their narrow definition of white. It's also religious, uh, different religions that are non-Christians that represent a threat. They also believe that it's being orchestrated by kind of a international conspiracy of primarily Jewish interests. So there's an anti-Semitic component to it. There's an anti-immigrant component. There's an anti-black component. There's an anti-non-Christian component. It it's really covers a broad array of folks that they would perceive as, as what they call enemies. Peter Seamy, sociology professor at Chapman University and the book American Swastika Inside the White Power Movement's Hidden Spaces of Hate. Mass shootings, sadly commonplace in this country. There's nowhere to go in the U.S. to escape them either. They happen in big cities, small towns. Lawmakers and others usually use the time after a mass shooting to call for gun control and other actions to try to stop them, but nothing really ever seems to get done. With us is Julian Peterson, psychologist and criminology professor at Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks for being with us. So uh, the phrase that we hear over and over and over and over again ad nauseum is, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with whomever happens to be the uh, the people involved, and, and uh, rightly so, but it never seems to go beyond thoughts and prayers, does it? You know, it really doesn't. These mass shooting events have become so routine, and our response has really become so routine that each one just kind of feels like the next one, and then the media fades on and the news cycle moves on until one happens again. So it's one reason that we decided to dig deep into the life histories of mass shooters in this five-year project, which we published in this book called The Violence Project, where we really tried to understand who are these perpetrators, where are they coming from, and what can we actually do? So what can we actually do? Because, you know, apparently this, this Buffalo shooter had some contact with authorities or maybe could have been diverted in some sort of mental health program at some point, but that didn't happen. So is that one way to, to try and catch people when you can, if you can, if you can get them to where they need to be and get them the help that they apparently need? Yeah, the Buffalo shooter actually follows a lot of the really same patterns that we see again and again in the lives of mass shooters. So the fact that he was leaking plans, he was saying he wanted to commit a murder-suicide, he was telling classmates, teachers, he was on the radar. That's really common. It's called leakage, and it's a really key intervention point. And for some reason in this case, which I'm sure we'll find more about what happened, that intervention was missed. Um, and he was also about to graduate. And so he kind of aged off without 
connecting him with other resources in the community. Then we see that he spends all this time online in the pandemic. I think he mentioned his manifesto that he was bored and kind of self-radicalizing on these really hateful websites. And so thinking about how do we control that hate for rhetoric? And then he was able to go out and purchase firearms. And it sounds like he had a background where he really shouldn't have been able to do that. Okay. And, but all these different theories about why people are motivated and, and you know, whether they, they leak stuff or they, they put a manifesto online, doesn't that all, in the end, really sort of dance around the issue? And the issue is, when you come down to it, guns are just too available in this country. And the Second Amendment is getting in the way or... If you happen to be of the viewpoint that uh, guns are necessary to own, then it is in the way uh, of having any meaningful change at either a federal or local level. Isn't that really the, the problem? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important key component of the problem. I think one thing we discovered through our research is there's not just one thing where you can say, oh, it's this, it's mental health or it's trauma or it's race and these hateful rhetoric, or it's this, it's guns, it's kind of all of it together. But certainly, easy access to guns is really fueling this. And especially for individuals like this, who have documented histories of troubled backgrounds. And when it comes to even school shootings, simple things like safe storage can actually be really helpful. So our research points to a lot of strategies like safe storage, universal background checks, red flag laws that have a pretty sort of widespread support across the spectrum. You mentioned some of the uh, Internet activity and social media companies. What's the role that they need to be playing? And they can probably be better at it because this was streamed on on Twitch, but it was gone in two minutes, which is good for them. But then there was a link to it on Facebook that got reposted and reposted and reposted Mm -hmm. through the weekend. There should not be an excuse for that second part. There really shouldn't. And part of the motivation of mass shootings is it's meant to be watched. It's meant to be witnessed, right? It's this awful, horrific crime, but the goal is to get your message out to the world. So that's why he live streams. That's why he leaves behind this manifesto, wanting his grievance to go viral, right? Wanting people to know his name and to know his acts. And so social media companies are the key component in that distribution. And so are we as the individuals who are reading it and consuming it. So I think really thinking about How do we cut down on that? How do we make it so these individuals aren't going viral and inspiring the next one? Okay, so the uh, president is supposed to go to Buffalo tomorrow. Uh, My guess is we'll hear the the traditional uh, thoughts and prayers and probably a call for Congress to do something. My guess is Congress will not do anything of any meaningful nature because that's just Congress. Uh, Do you see anything, though, in the, I don't know, next five years, let's just keep it confined to a five-year period, that would materially change the situation in this country so that mass shootings would have a marked decrease? Oh, gosh, I hope so. I mean, one thing... Well, that's hope, but do you see anything? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think in our book we outline things that we can do as individuals, things that we can do as institutions, so as schools and workplaces and places of worship, and then things that need to happen at the policy level. And I think it gets so frustrating at the policy level, but there are other things that we can be doing. I mean, we have to do something about gun control in this country, but certainly there's things like building crisis response teams, build, you know, building connections with community mental health centers, threat assessment. There's things that have sort of good research support that we can be doing without an act of Congress and even just things like safe storage of our own firearms. 
Jillian Peterson, psychologist, criminology professor, Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Well, coming up, lots more people in California and elsewhere around the country live in high fire danger areas now. And robots might really be taking over, especially when it comes time to get your pizza. Right now, alliances in Europe could change drastically because of Russia's war with Ukraine. Sweden now joining Finland and formerly looking to become a NATO member. Even Switzerland is uh, doing some talk about maybe making some moves. Denny Bello, professor of international relations at Webster University in St. Louis, an expert on NATO-Russia relations. Professor, thanks for being here. So are we just living in a world now where staying neutral may not mean staying safe? Well, uh, what we're seeing is since February 2022, there has been a significant escalation in terms of uh, Russia's ambitions to uh, create security for itself, what it seems like um, in Eastern Europe, it's creating a lot of insecurity and hostilities. And remaining neutral is becoming very difficult considering what we're seeing happening in Ukraine right now. But what, so what we're seeing is a, what, a, a major realignment of, of the sort of post-World War II world, at least when it comes to Europe, yes? Indeed, especially since uh, the end of the Cold War, what we're seeing right now is a tectonic shift in the security architecture in Europe and uh, Sweden and Finland's uh, desire to join uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization is certainly a part of that. Does anything stand in their way, Sweden and Finland? The president of Turkey has had some things to say. Uh, why would he not be happy with this? Well, uh, what we're seeing um, coming out of the foreign ministry and uh, President uh, Tayyip Erdogan is a claim that um, Sweden and Finland are harboring uh, people who are essentially in opposition to uh, Turkey's uh, ruling leadership and uh, basically will take significant negotiation with Turkey to convince them to vote along with the other NATO members, and their vote is certainly critical uh, to accept Finland and Sweden. Are there sort of unforeseen, and I suppose by definition, if they're unforeseen, we can't foresee them, but but are there things that might or likely in your mind to be negative repercussions of this sort of realignment? Well, what we're seeing um, being articulated right now by the Kremlin is um, a promise that uh, Moscow will take certain measures uh, to counter this, what they perceive to be a hostile uh, action by NATO. What that will entail, we don't know, uh, but it will certainly uh, entail a, a deterioration of relations, especially between Helsinki and Moscow. Um, and uh, what that will entail, we'll just have to see. But we have to be very cautious and take the appropriate measures to be ready for any sort of development. What about other countries seeing what Sweden and Finland are doing and, and starting to, to think about themselves? Switzerland, famously neutral. We mentioned them before. Um, what are they making moves towards doing? There was some talk that they're going to train more with the NATO countries or at least have more open communications with the NATO countries. So they're, they're almost inching closer than they've ever been before. Well, uh, we also have to keep in mind that Switzerland is uh, removed um, geographically from um, Moscow and uh, the border with Russia. Sweden and Finland are, Finland has a 1300 kilometer border with Russia. So they're essentially on any front line of potential hostilities and Sweden is close by. Switzerland is in the center of Europe. It's part of the European community, but the threat for, Swi for Switzerland is uh, nowhere near the other two. The, uh, the future for, for Vladimir Putin, um, one would have to suspect that even though early on people were saying he, he was probably too cloistered and maybe was given false information or bad information from his own military leaders, one has to presume he's not an idiot. He must realize what's going on, and he sees now what's happening with Finland and, and uh, Sweden. Uh, 
in the long run, what does he end up doing? Because he's kind of boxed in and everything that he wanted to accomplish, it seems as if the exact opposite has happened. That's exactly right. Um, The Kremlin tried to divide the U.S. and Europe uh, for a number of years, and we're seeing the U.S. and uh, Europe uh, being more united than ever. Um, The challenge here is um, that the only way uh, for this to be resolved is through negotiation and de-escalation because any alternative in terms of military actions uh, can have devastating consequences. So what needs to be done is to create some sort of uh, face-saving off-ramp for the Kremlin uh, to de-escalate. And also um, there has to be a clear indication that NATO will not um, back down. But again, the off-ramp for the Kremlin is key and some concessions may have to be done on our end uh, to achieve that de-escalation. Danny Bello, Professor of International Relations, Webster University in St. Louis. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. More people willing to fly again. The airlines raising ticket prices, preparing for what could be a busy summer travel season. But we've got a problem. Yep, the problem is the pilot shortage. And you kind of need them. It's the worst <laughs> you do. There's no one up front. <laughs> right. It's, a, it's the worst shortage in recent memory. And it is already creating problems in the form of grounded planes. With us now is Kit Darby, who is a pilot paid consultant, pay consultant rather, and retired United Airlines captain. Thanks for being with us. So, so how did, did the airlines get themselves into this mess? Well, we've actually uh, been there a couple of times before. Um, previously, we've been right down to the to the nub on pilots, and we've been saved by recession or uh, disease, a pandemic, or you know that type of thing. So, we several times in the last ten years, we've gotten close, and this time we sort of made it worse by enacting some legislation that dramatically raised the pilot requirements. Um, so, right before COVID, we were we were running out, and and when COVID hit, we said, hey. You know, too many pilots right away and and retired about 5,000 extra pilots uh, that were uh, excess at the time. But it turns out as the traffic returns that we, in fact, need those pilots. So the combination of too many retirements, regular age 65 retirements and a booming market put us in a a bad place. And it, it actually takes quite a while to make a pilot. So the solution is nowhere near. Yeah. How long does it take to make a pilot? And you said they, they raise the, the criteria a little bit, which as someone sitting in the back of the, the back of the bus, I, I don't mind. Right. If my pilots are super well trained, I would want them to be. Yes. I mean, in most cases, more is good. Uh, in this case, the, the more is just quantity, though, not necessarily quality. Uh, the, the, the government formed some expert committees and studied this issue and they came up with some excellent recommendations all of which were completely ignored for the total time concept of 1,500 hours. And it's not up just a little bit. The previous minimum was 250 hours. So it's up 600% at a time when we're short of pilots. That really puts a crunch on the supply and raises the cost to the individual pilot to qualify uh, by uh, tens of thousands of dollars. And what about the whole 65 retirement age thing? I mean, it, it used to be lower, right? And then they raised it a bit. But I mean, yeah. this this is 2022 and people live longer, more healthy mm-hmm. lives than they did, you know, 20, 30 years ago. You have Bill Shatner who went into space. I know he wasn't piloting, but still he managed to do it and come back in one piece. And he's in his 90s. Okay. Uh, is Is it time to maybe base retirement age on somebody's own physical 
health as opposed to their chronological age? Well, certainly that's what would seem to be the logical goal. Um, other countries have done the same where they, you know, as long as you can maintain the medical standard, then you can fly. Uh, I, I think we're, we saw the raise from 60 to 65 with a, when the other shortage was developing, and this shortage is far worse. And I'm pretty confident that they'll raise the retirement age again uh, based on the need for more pilots. And it does kick a portion of the can down the road. Quite honestly, it doesn't produce enough pilots quick enough. It won't solve the problem. It'll make it a little easier for however much longer they extend it. Uh, two years is what most people are saying. But this is a, this is a five-year problem. Uh, and it's going to be really bad. It's bad right now, and we don't really know how bad it's going to get. But we are parking planes. So it depends on where you live and where you want to go. If you want to go from L.A. to Chicago, there's not an issue. If you want to go to a smaller location, or worse yet, you live in a small location and want to go somewhere else, those are the cities and airports that are losing service, reduced flights, or in some cases, no flights. And you might may now be faced with driving three or four hours to to get on an airplane and go somewhere. All right. That is Kit Darby, pilot's pay consultant, retired United Airlines captain. So it's those regionals, you know, American Eagle, United Express, those little yeah, little companies that fly for those guys. So you, if you want to go Good to... Good luck, everyone. Yeah, and like you said, if you want to go to a smaller place, then drive. <laughs> With the gas prices. With the gas yeah, prices. Things yeah. are going great. A new analysis in the Washington Post finds one in six people in the country lives in an area with significant wildfire risk. No surprise that California has the most homes in these danger areas. So is it more homes being built in areas that were already prone to the fires? Or if uh, areas previously considered safe, are they now in these danger zones? With us is Chad Hansen, co-founder of the John Muir Project, environmental group, and uh, author of Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. Uh, Chad, thanks for being here. So back to that question. More homes are being built in areas that are just way too close to, to the burn zones, or are the burn zones expanding? Both. Yeah, it's, it's sort of a good news, bad news situation. I mean, the good news is the science is really clear on how we protect homes and communities from wildfire and how best to do that. Basically, it's about directing the resources to, toward the communities themselves, helping homeowners make their homes more fire safe and doing that defensible space pruning within 100 feet of homes, evacuation routes, that kind of thing. It's highly effective. The bad news is we're not doing that. Uh, we're, we're spending only a tiny fraction of our wildfire resources in those places. Most of it's going to subsidize logging in remote forests, which is not helping at all. In fact, it's making it worse. And these bad decisions, in your view, are being made by whom and why? Well, they're, they're being made by um, the California State Legislature and, uh, and, and Governor Gavin Newsom. They're being made at the state level. They're being made at the federal level by uh, the U.S. Congress and President Biden, and before that by President Trump. And so this is a, a bipartisan problem. <laughs> a, both political parties are a problem on this, and really it comes down to the money. Um, uh, lots of politicians, Dem Democrats and Republicans, are getting a lot of campaign contributions from logging corporations. If we were to do things the way that you recommend, how much better would we be at withstanding some of this? Because you look at some areas that have done the work and still, given the climate, given the winds, given how fast these fires can move now, you're still super vulnerable at the end of the day. Yeah, this is a great question. You know, so so the, the answer is uh, even in the most extreme conditions, it's extraordinarily effective if we focus on two key things, home hardening 
and defensible space pruning. And they're, they're all about communities themselves. And I would add a third to that, which is uh, fire safe shelters and evacuation assistance in the communities. And um, what we're seeing is even in really extreme, hot, dry, windy conditions, so that, that kind of extreme fire weather, um, if these things are done properly ahead of time in a community, we're seeing numerous examples where 99% of homes survive and everyone gets out safe. So we know it's effective. In California, and I don't know about other parts of the country, but certainly here, a lot of fires have been, as I'm sure you know, caused by by power companies because their lines are not insulated. The uh, the wires are above ground because it's cheaper than putting them beneath the ground. In some cases, I suppose they they can put it beneath the ground. Uh, is that a big part of the solution, at least in California? It is. It's definitely part of it. Um, you know, there are, there are a few other things that we should, you know, we should talk about in addition to home hardening and defensible space and evacuation assistance. Those are the top three, but certainly bearing power lines is a big one because it's a big ignition source. And frankly, the fourth one that really should be talked about is just controlling unplanned human ignitions. Uh, a big part of that is power lines, and, and we need to spend the resources, and frankly, the power companies should spend the resources to put those power lines underground so they don't come down during high winds and cause a fire. But also just simple things like um, you know, we need more people, more, more rangers, more, um, more staff, more uh, out in the forest at state and federal level, making sure that people don't do dumb things that cause fires during the middle of fire season, like illegal campfires. A lot of this is preventable, but again, it's not where the money's going. Mostly the money is going to subsidize logging projects in backcountry forests on public lands, telling the public it's going to stop fires or somehow curb them. And that's not happening. In fact, the logged areas are often burning more intensely and the public's being misled because they're using euphemisms like thinning and fuel reduction. And it's just logging. And that's the problem. What do we do in these areas where the, the risk has expanded and we're not talking forest areas that are used to this? So maybe it's not even on their radar. I mean, so many people were shocked when those uh, subdivisions in Boulder burned, when that fire just ripped on through. And that was a wake up call for, for people thinking, well, I guess the rules have changed here. Yeah, no, this is a really key point is that this is not really a forest issue. This is a community issue. And a lot of the most vulnerable communities across the entire country, not just in California, but elsewhere in Colorado included, a lot of them are not in forests and are nowhere near forests. You know, those, those communities that were devastated by those fires last fall um, uh, between Denver and Boulder, Colorado, those communities were nowhere near a forest. They were many miles away from forests. Those were grass fires. And fires move much more rapidly through grass and, and, and shrub habitat, especially grass, than they do um, than they do forests. Forest fires are much, much slower by comparison because the more trees you have, the more cooling shade and canopy cover you have, the more moisture you have in the system, and the more of, of a windbreak you have against the, the winds that drive the flames. When you remove trees from the forest, you actually make the fires burn faster and, and oftentimes hotter too. How much of the solution also is in communities at the state or maybe maybe at a county level just prohibiting the building of, of homes? Because the real estate interests, especially in California, have really had absolutely no shame in building new communities in areas that they probably shouldn't have built communities. Yeah, this is definitely part of the solution. So there's a lot that we can do with existing homes in making them more fire safe. There's a lot that can be done to retrofit homes. And I believe, and many of my colleagues uh, in the scientific community believe, as forests and fire ecologists, as climate scientists, we believe that, uh, that Congress and the state legislature should allocate funds to help 
low-income uh, households uh, make them themselves more fire safe, uh, people that don't have the financial resources to do that. Um, but the other part of it, of course, is restricting and stopping uh, uh, large housing projects in these remote areas that are inherently vulnerable and risky, where first responders are a long ways away, where the topography doesn't really allow very good uh, evacuation um, uh, potential, uh, where there's, it's naturally windy and, uh, and, and prone to, to fast-moving fires. There was a big proposal up by the grapevine uh, like this that I commented on earlier and said this is just exactly what we should not be doing, but it's not the only one. So that's a key part of it. Chad Hansen, co-founder of the John Muir Project Environmental Group and uh, author of Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Home prices, rents just keep going up and up and up. White House says it's going to fight the price and rent hikes, though, and inflation all at the same time. The Housing Supply Action Plan. The goal is to increase the number of homes in the next five years, but can that really be done? With us is Alexander Tomich, Associate Dean and Economist at Boston uh, College. Thanks for being with us. Uh, well, I, I guess that is the first question. Can it really be done? It sounds great. Well, and thank you for having me. And yes, it sounds a little too good to be true. So uh, it's an interesting uh, mix of policies that are being proposed that I think will take a little while to yield the desired results. But uh, I don't know that it will fight inflation and help the rental prices all at the same time. It uh, seems like uh, that's not necessarily going to happen. All right. Assuming some of it works, what are the policies that you see in here that that you like that could do something? Sure. So zoning is the big one. I mean, some uh, a lot of uh, the home uh, in affordability rises from zoning. And one of the good pieces here that I think is this reward for jurisdiction that reform zoning laws. Uh, the other, uh, the other proposals, you know, the helping with the financing of manufactured homes and uh, uh, auxiliary dwelling units and so on and so forth. While they will increase the supply down the road immediately, they will also increase the demand because government is throwing money at the problem. And so what we will have, you know, it will, it, it's enabling people to get financing, but that doesn't reduce prices that actually causes prices to be higher. So, you know, it will take a little while for these extra units to be built. It will take a little while to figure out if people really want to live in a mobile home. Uh, but then all of these help to homeowners to finance their homes will actually have inflationary potential. And then, of course, all of this construction that's going to be financed will use, will show up initially as inflation in the construction materials and construction workers' salaries and such, and then maybe down the road it will increase the the supply of homes and maybe lower the price. Was there a, a dividing line, at least in modern times in this country, uh, when there was affordable housing in, in you know, fairly decent uh, supply, and, and then it sort of tipped over into not having enough? And if that was the case, what changed? Well, it ebbs and flows, right? I mean, so the, the supply of housing and the price of housing, it, it just ebbs and flows. So to give you an example, if you bought a house in 2006 at the height of the pre-Great Recession market, you know, you pay the price that you could not recover again until almost 2010, 2011, right? Uh, because then in 2006, 7, 8, the housing market crashed and then very slowly recovered. Right now, we are again 
probably closer to a peak of the of the market. It's a little bit different this time as it usually is. Uh, there is a lot of money in the economy. It's being pumped from all sides. Uh, we also have these institutional investors who are buying houses, but we are also, I, I think, you know, we are headed in for a correction, especially if the Fed maintains uh, their interest rate hikes. So it's, it's a cyclical uh, issue. So, yes, maybe the last great affordability boom was in the wake of the Great Recession, you know, and such. But but I, and I think the market will go through its cycle again. And government right now is taking this as a cause. And, you know, like I said, they have some ideas how to increase the supply, but I don't think those are anti-inflationary in any sense. And I'm not sure that they will help in the immediate term. How much trouble are some of the builders having right now just getting stuff to build the houses with all the supply chain issues? I know someone that's been waiting on a refrigerator for more than a year now. <laughs> well, I just today, to, to give you an idea, just today I wanted to get a quote from one of the contractors, and he basically said he was done with three quotes. So he would charge for the quote, and then he'll take the money off uh, if, uh, if uh, I chose him. And then when I asked, okay, but when can you come and do a relatively small project? He said, not before July. So everybody is, you know, is just uh, stretched out. Uh, everybody is stretched out in the construction industry as well. And this is not just the construction industry. Uh, so, you know, I, I just don't see that uh, changing for the at least next few months. I mean, there will have to be some kind of reduction in demand before I think we will see anything, you know, Anything resembling coming back, coming back to normal. And of course, the big question is COVID, right? I mean, we still, although people are not ending up in hospitals, COVID is spreading again, uh, people calling in sick, right? Then that, you know, postpones the completion of the project and, and so on. So, you know, I, I think everybody is incredibly stretched. I think right now it's not an easy time to to do anything and to build anything because there is shortage of workers and price, prices of materials are high. And then if all of this funding goes through, it will just exacerbate that problem. Alexander Tomic, Associate Dean, an economist, Boston College. Pizza places, they pioneered food delivery all across the country. Domino's used to promise delivery in 30 minutes or less. Then there was free delivery, but... These same pizza places are now having trouble finding drivers. Can we fix this through the robots? They're already out there. You see them. Uh, there are a lot of them out like, yeah. in Melrose area. There's one downstairs here. There's one right here. in front of our building. One to get a little flag on the back of them. Yeah. Blows in the wind. Uh, Alistair Westgarth is with us now, CEO of Starship Technologies, makes these food delivery robots. They've got a global fleet of more than 2,000 little guys. Uh, Alistair, thanks for being here. So do you guys uh, have pizza restaurants that, that have the robots? Uh, we do have pizza restaurants in uh, England that we deliver for, plus we deliver lots of pizzas on college campuses. We have uh, well over two dozen campuses where we have our robots deployed. And in L.A., they're on UCI and uh, UCLA, actually. So how exactly do they do they work? They're not, at the moment, autonomous, right? Ours are autonomous. Ours they are. are uh, yeah, ours are level four autonomous. So there's nobody driving the robots. They do almost all their own decision-making themselves. Uh, a person places an order, the order comes into our system, and we send it over to the merchant. The merchant prepares the food. The robot arrives just before it's ready. They put it in the robot, and then it drives to the uh, pin location that the uh, customer's requested. How good are they? I mean, it's got, like, uh, Apple Maps, and it knows kind of where it's going, but how does it navigate sidewalks and ramps and all that stuff? 
oh, they're covered in sensors. We have radars on there. We have ultrasonic sensors. There's nine different cameras. So we can see cars. We can see people. We can see obstacles in the way. Uh, we know where we're allowed to drive. And, you know, those green lanes, so to speak, is where the robots drive. Now, I mean, now, now some of the robots, uh, the, the one that Mike was referring to that's in front or back, actually, of our building, some of these require a human driver who's sitting somewhere, I suppose, on a computer, right? Uh, for those robots that use uh, remote control, they'll have a, an operator somewhere. You know, it could be in another country, another state, another city, and they're basically looking through the eyes of the robot using cameras to um, use a PlayStation controller or equivalent to drive it around. Our robots do nearly all the decision-making themselves. Now, if the robot gets stuck or there's a problem, it will signal our remote operations center, and they'll look at the situation and, and see whether the robot needs assistance. Most of the times, the uh, operator just says, you're fine, proceed. How often, yeah, how often does that happen where you have to take over? Or what confuses the robots? Um, well, we know where we're supposed to drive. And say we were driving somewhere and there was construction in the middle of the sidewalk. The robot can go around the construction by itself. But say the construction cut across the entire area where we had it mapped is allowed to go. At that point, the robot wouldn't know what to do. So then it would send an alert to the uh, remote control center and then it Somebody would look at the situation for the robot and uh, determine the course of action. It's very infrequent that uh, that occurs. Like I said, we're we're the equivalent of level four autonomy. So you know, well over ninety nine percent of the time, the robot's doing all of its own decision making. Well, what happens if the person getting the delivery is in a high rise building? I mean, the robot doesn't go into the elevator, I presume, and, and deliver it. I, I suppose it alerts the the person to come on down. Is that how it works? So in our case, uh, you would have an app, a Starship app on your phone, and you would say, I, I want to order my groceries, my pizza, whatever. And they say, I want to, the robot to show up in front of the building. And at that point, the uh, just like with an Uber or a Lyft drive, the user can tell how far away the robot is, what stage of food preparation or delivery it is. And when it's getting very close within a couple minutes, you know, you'll see alert show up on the phone saying, hey, please go outside to meet the robot. You go outside and the, the app will say you beside the robot and you say yes and then the lid opens up and you can retrieve your food. Today we do not drive inside buildings uh, for food delivery. We do do that in some uh, industrial campuses, but that's a different application. How what's your average for like the length of a trip for one of these little guys? Most of the deliveries are within a mile, uh, but we do you know much closer ones. Apparently, people. Don't want to walk, you know, sometimes <laughs> a few hundred yards because they're busy. Uh, but we've also had many cases where we've driven six, seven kilometers, you know, three, four, five miles. All right. So now we get to the most important part of this story, which is, oh, boy. well, you know, uh, we got to get it out there. Uh, do people, should people tip these robots? I, very generous being the kind of person I am would be in favor of tipping the robots. Mike, who's but this a is a hypothetical. <laughs> you haven't actually tipped a robot. No, no, but I so, would. So tell me once it comes to your door whether you stick a dollar in its little you know, I, lid. I didn't <laughs> say it would be a dollar, but I would tip it. What, what's the proper etiquette for tipping or not tipping a robot? Well, I, I assume then you don't like cows either, so you've obviously been into <laughs> cow tipping. Uh, no, you shouldn't tip the robots. If you do, there's a very, very loud siren that will go off that is the equivalent of a uh, of a car car alarm if you broke the window or tried to open the door and it wasn't your vehicle so it will alert uh, very very loudly that uh, that occurred and you know if you just happened to stand in front of the robot or tried to push the robot it would very politely say 
um, please excuse me, I need to uh, complete my job, or would it be possible if I could go around you? So we try to make sure the robots are extremely uh, safe no, and no, also but, extremely polite. Yeah, but but we were talking about the other kind of tip. I don't want to push one over. Yeah, we're talking about oh, actually giving, oh, yes. I, he wants ah, to give the robot yeah, money, yeah, right? But yeah. what, well, what does the I, robot do with the money? Well, I don't care. <laughs> Whatever the robot wants to do, it, it's free to do. Does it get Sundays off? Yeah, but it gets. We, right. we, we would much rather you you wrote a poem, wrote a story, or sang to the robot. What happens to us all the time is the robots will return to their hubs at night, and we will find cards, drawings, well wishes in the robot by dozens. It happens all of the time. It's quite amazing. So a little story, a little poem, a little little card. Okay, that's kind of fun. I like that one. So you would do that? Yeah, but you sure. Throw a sticker in there. But you wouldn't give it at like a dollar. No, it doesn't need it. You're just cheap. It's going back to its charging yeah. station. <laughs> yeah. Did Did you see the tweet that was up there this morning? Somebody got a bunch of retweets because they found one in the woods wandering around on their like hiking trail. <laughs> I did. I, I did. I did see that. I did see that. Yeah. Are, are Not there, one of sure yours. Are, are there people? Yes, it was one of ours. I'm not sure whether it was driving down an area supposed to be quite possibly because there's some interesting places we do drive. All are, right. Are there people who get creeped out by having a, a robot delivering to them? You know, it's rather interesting. We get overwhelmingly positive support. People say they love the robot. The robot's cute. Uh, you could order music with our robot, and you know, so you the lid opens up and you retrieve your food, and it plays your favorite song, or it might play a Star Wars theme, or something like that. So, we, you know, very rarely do we get anybody saying they don't like them or uh, don't want the robots to show up. All right, I'll let it play the Star Wars when it comes. Oh, and to now, my house. now you'll no, get. I've it a never tip. been anti-robot. I think they're yeah. cute. I kind of like them. Yeah. Uh, Alistair Westgarth, CEO of Starship Technologies, makes the food delivery robots. I like when I'm driving around, I see it go scooting down the street. But if it opened, but you like Star Wars. We've talked about that. Yeah, if it but plays it a Star Wars money, theme, it's a you robot. It? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Leave a quarter in it. <laughs> Rattles around. <laughs> All right. That's in depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow. Tip your robots, everybody.